Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. In her early 20s, Yafa Larea found her calling, working at the heart of storytelling as a film and television editor. Starting her career at a post-production facility by day while taking a night course in film production at New York University, Larea discovered her passion for editing. Since then, she's been an editor on numerous films and TV series, including Ken Burns' award-winning Baseball, CNN's The Movies, the 60s and the 80s, Project Runway, MTV's The Real World, and Twin Towers, which won an Academy Award as Best Short Documentary. In just the past two years, Lorea produced CNN's Tis the Season, The Holidays on Screen, and co-edited Shot in the Arm, a documentary about the anti-vaccine movement. She was also an editor on Amazon's Making the Cut and Lizzo's Watch Out for the Big Girls. Larea spoke to TSTB from her home in Santa Monica, California. All right. Well, Yafa, it's great to welcome you to the Story Talks Back. Thank you for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Nice to see you. <laughs> um, and I like to start my interviews by talking uh, about storytelling in your past. Mm. So, um, you know, are there any storytellers or particular stories that you feel really moved you or may have influenced you in a crucial way? Hmm. Well, my father told stories a lot. I mean, he was just a good storyteller. Um, but I also just, I was in love with reading stories as a kid. I mean, I was one of those kids that mom would drag me to the grocery store and I'd be like with my head in a book always, wherever I was, I always was reading. Um, and uh, that turned into studying literature at college. And so, I mean, I, I just always was a fan of storytelling and, uh, you know, the way that literature could weave together characters and, and plots and all of that just to me was fascinating always and and it just was something I was drawn to so yeah were you also aware of visual storytelling like the movies or was that, was that meaningful for you yeah I mean in it's funny I was thinking about how in high school a friend of mine and I we were we did like some kind of report all about movies. We did a lot of research on movies and uh, she and I both actually were all through junior high and high school. We were writing, we were in creative writing classes together and uh, we used to sneak into movies like when the Cineplex concept began, we would, you know, tell our moms we were going to go to one movie and then we'd end up like sneaking into like three more, you know, just like just watching movies and movies we weren't allowed to see. Um 
And yeah, that was always just something that I loved. And also my mom and I always loved the Academy Awards and watching, you know, what was the biggest, brightest films and actors. And every year we went to Florida for um, vacation every like spring break. And it was always kind of timed right before the Academy Awards. And so my mom and I would every night we would like watch (laughs) my sister and my mom and I, we would go and see where are all the Academy Award nominees going to be showing? And we every night we would see a different film. And it was just something that was kind of part of my uh, my life as, as you know, a young teenager. So I always loved that. Yeah. Were there any particular movies or directors who really impressed you? Well, um, you know, I think... I mean, certainly heartthrobs like Paul Newman and Robert Redford... <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, but but yeah, I think I just always appreciated good good storytelling and good craft, like the craft of the films themselves uh, was something that really intrigued me. And, I, you know, there just were so many and even let's say Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, for example. I mean, it's just a beautifully crafted film. And the combination of humor and drama and pathos always just really drew me in. And uh, that's something that, I mean, later when I I was living actually in Paris, I discovered the auteurism of directors actually. And so that was where I started realizing because I always loved film and I would go to films, but Paris is a very film oriented society. Like they love cinema. And when I was living there, I started realizing that every time a director's new film came out, they would start to show other films of that same filmmaker all over the city. So I started self-educating myself in filmmakers. And so the first one that struck me was the film Paris, Texas by the filmmaker Vim Vendors came out. And I loved that. Yeah, so beautiful. So I loved that film. And then they were showing all these, and I'd never heard of Vim Vendors. He was a German filmmaker. And I realized all his other films were being shown around town. So around Paris. And so I just went to all of his films because I loved his his style. And then Fellini's new film came out called The Ship Sails On. And sure enough, all over Paris, all the Fellini films were shown. So I started realizing that I could educate myself in film auteurism, different directors, their styles. And I just kind of immersed myself in that. I was an English teacher and a tour guide at the time, but I just had the opportunity to just keep looking into what made a filmmaker's style and stamp and voice. So, yeah. And when did you sort of make the transition or have the idea of making the transition to shaping films and and shaping those stories? Well, when I was living in Paris, it was post-college. I had studied literature in college. And as I say, I always loved film. Um, And so by the time I was in Paris for a few years and all my friends in New York from college were starting to have real careers and I was still just a tour guide and an English teacher, just in a way to live there, um, I realized, well, maybe I should do something in film, but I didn't know what. 
So I moved back to New York and I started, I amazingly, I got a job as like a receptionist at a big post-production house in New York called Magno Sound, where they, and I didn't even know what post-production meant. And that, as it turned out, meant editing, sound editing, mixing. Um, and so I started looking over people's shoulders and seeing what they did in the sound department and sitting in, like sneaking into mixes and seeing how they did the mixing of the sound. And I also was able to meet a lot of filmmakers who were editing in the editing rooms at the facility. And simultaneously, I took a class at NYU that was like continuing ed, just a night class that uh, was film production, because I didn't know anything about how films were really put together. So that led me to realize, oh, okay, so we have a project where we write a little bit of a script, we have a shoot, lighting, camera, development, and then editing, which I didn't know much about. And I realized, oh, this is where the story actually happens. This is where you can actually make everything come together in all kinds of possible ways. And I just loved that. And so from that experience at the school, I just said, anybody who's got a film to edit, I, it, it, I'll do it. Um, and it was just at the you know film school there. But simultaneously, I was able to work at night also helping out some of the filmmakers who were editing their films in the place I was working. And, uh, and at that time, it was easy because it was film as opposed to computers. So there was always a need for somebody to help out because you like take all the film strips and put them in order and label things. And there was just a lot of busy work in an editing room. So that was great. So I learned a lot that way. Um, and then I realized I just, I could actually try to make that into my work. Um, so for a couple of years, I waitressed and I or I volunteered in editing rooms so that I could just get the experience. But in, in New York at that time, it was actually really fantastic because there were only pretty much three facilities where there was just floors of editing rooms. So one room would be Martin Scorsese. The next room would be a little documentary. The next room would be Woody Allen. The next room would be a little feature independent project. So you'd go door to door with your resume and meet tons of people. So it was great. It was really great. So little by little, I was able to get an actual paying job. Um, and that led to Ishtar, <laughs> which <laughs> almost everyone in New York worked on Ishtar. And that was my sort of big, big break in a way as an apprentice sound editor. So pretty much I was cleaning film all day long, but it gave me a little window into, you know, the way big features were, were done. And as I say, I mean, you know, to me, the fascinating thing was how, like in the school program, at the continuing ed, how you could see how editing was where it all happened, at least in my mind, that was, that was the place for the story. So. That's interesting that instead of saying, Oh, I want to be a director. Like right. Fellini, you, you really <laughs> noticed and, you know, zoomed in on the idea that the editor was the storyteller and that really interested you. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I actually went around to a lot of the fairly substantial, you know, big editors at that time who were in New York. And I just asked them, can I talk to you for a few minutes about editing? Like, how do you, how do you do this? How did, what's the process with the director? And they were all incredibly helpful and lovely and just, you know, would be happy to talk to me. A lot of them said, don't do it. <laughs> you won't have a life. <laughs> And they were right about that. <laughs> so that was something that comes in my mind now and then when I talk to young editors and they're like, I really want to do this. And I'm always like, if you want to trade in your life, it's great. <laughs> but you have to uh, be aware that it's many, many hours. So, yeah. What else did they did they tell you? Do you remember anything else that you learned from me? <laughs> um, well, the main thing is how the same footage can come to an editor. And obviously there's a whole dynamic with directors and the difference between scripted and non-scripted, but, um, and there is a script for feature films, obviously, but you have potentially, depending on what the director and the cinematographer do, but you have all these different angles and you have all the, you know, so I've always been told, and it, I absolutely believe it, that you know, you give the same footage to 10 different editors and they'll come up with 10 different stories. And that it's just a, it's a craft that is very subtle, very subjective, and you can completely change the dynamic in a scene by reaction shots, by um, choosing to linger on something, to expand time, to contract time. There's all these different ways that it, evokes different aspects of the story. So it's just, to me, that's a fascinating aspect of how to how to bring elements together in a way that is completely new. So. And I'm, I'm sure this is a very big question, but like how much direction are you getting, mm. you know, on <laughs> how exactly you should switch to a certain shot at a certain time how much is it really up to you? Right. Depends on the director. Depends on the film, the situation completely. Um, I, I work mostly in documentaries. So I did work on features earlier in my career. Um, but even there, there was a lot of subjectivity because, um, for example, I worked on a feature when I first moved here um called the low life which had a lot of young actors who now have become like renee zellinger had a very small part and you know kira sedgwick different people uh ron livingston but it was kind of a mess the script was kind of all over the place and the director really was very passionate about it but it wasn't quite working so in the editing room we kept trying different things like moving scenes completely around, changing the things they said in the, the conversation, like let's not use those lines, let's use these lines. And in that case, it was a balance. You know, the director was very interested in like, okay, let's try this. But then he'd say, okay, just let me know tomorrow if it works. If it doesn't work, try something else, do whatever you think, you know? And so I think that's a frequent sort of dynamic. Um, but in documentaries, uh, it's completely up to how 
how directed the plan is for the film, because often with documentaries, the director is gathering all the interviews. They have a plan for what they want to have the film be, but you don't know until you're out there in the field filming what's going on for the topic and what the interviewees say or what you know the circumstances are. So the director doesn't necessarily know what's going to end up on film. So it's brought back to the editing room and then often, you know, we'll sit together and just kind of go, oh, wow, that is actually a really interesting aspect of what just happened. Let's use that. Um, and structurally, it's completely up for grabs in documentaries. You know, it could start with something that happened, you know, yesterday and then go back to something that happened, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, you know, there's infinite possibilities. So that is really a puzzle. And actually speaking of puzzles, I have to say when I was a kid, I loved puzzles. <laughs> like that was something that I did all the time as well as reading books. So it's it's definitely a, a game of puzzles with uh, documentaries particularly because there's no roadmap. Whereas, you know, with a, a scripted film, you have a roadmap, you have the script, at least as a starting point. So it but really there must depends. be, there must, like you said, there's a map or there's some kind of intention. And then also, you also have worked on a lot of multi-part documentary series yes. where you're editing one or two out of maybe eight episodes. And so there has yes. to be consistency somehow and it needs to all hold together. So right. that makes right. it even more complex, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in those cases, on a lot of these documentary series, there will be um, story story editors who kind of look at the, the whole uh, initially and sort of figure out, okay, we're going to, I mean, it, again, it sort of depends on the situation, but um, like the CNN Decade series that I've worked on with um, Mark Herzog and Playtone, they um, are a very clear structure because it's chronological. We did the 60s and then we did the 70s and then we did the 80s. But within that, we had to figure out with CNN um, which topics are going to be in each episode. And so they were cultural, political, um, and technological. Like I worked on an episode in the 1980s on technology because the 1980s had the burst of computers and Walkmans and all of that. Um, so it kind of would depend on the decade itself, what sort of rose to the top of, of the cultural and political issues, and then deciding, okay, these are going to be the episodes. There's going to be one on, you know, this presidency, this is going to be on, you know, women's rights and civil rights, you know, that, that kind of division. But in other cases, um, like I worked on a series with RJ Cutler about medical residents, the residents, and it was a full year of following these residents. And we were working on it while they were in the hospital, but that was a very complex sort of like, oh wait, this little story about this doctor with this patient would actually reflect better in juxtaposition with that story that happened three months ago with this other patient, you know? So that with, along with the story editors, we kind of had to 
move things around and figure out what would just encompass the best episode. So um, you really have a, a lot of latitude to see the connections and yeah. sort of make leaps. Right. Um, and I mean, how for a given like one hour documentary or 40 minutes, whatever, how much footage are you working with? How many hours of, of material do you usually have? Right. Well, it kind of depends because there's documentaries that have live action that they, the director goes out and actually films something that's, that's happening. Um, you know, whether it's a topic about, um, you know, a particular town or village or event um, that's current and talking to interviewees who are current or archival. Right. So like working on the decade series, we used news footage, right? Tons and tons of archival news footage. Um, Ken Burns's documentaries, we use a lot of stills as well as the footage. Um, so it kind of, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, hours and hours and hours of footage generally. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in the current news cycle, because there's so much news, um, like last year I worked on a, a film about um, vaccines and, and the anti-vax movement. And there were, um, and it's now just completed a called Shot in the Arm. And, you know, there was tons of hours of footage of news reports and and it's just, yeah, it can be a little overwhelming because the news just also keeps new things come up all the time. So working on current things is is particularly challenging of like when to stop, you know, <laughs> when, you know, and that's, and again, that's kind of the relationship with the director. It's up to how, how, you know, clear the director feels about the subject, but it's always a dialogue with the editors, which is what's really great. Yeah. Well, that's another sort of aspect of this is, you know, I think we typically picture the editor as sitting next to the director mm -hmm. you know, and they're like the director says no cut here cut there you know <laughs> like that's sort of the classic <laughs> you know, like i remember watching uh this the movie about the stones at altamont you know uh give me shelter i guess it's called. yeah yeah and uh, there's there are scenes where there's mick jagger and the director sitting there watching the footage but i don't think that really happens very much anymore well, does well, it could. It could. I mean, you know, I have a feeling and because, as I say, I've worked mostly in documentaries in the past many years. Um, it's very possible that, you know, in in scripted feature films and scripted television, there's more control in that way um, that directors are more kind of because in that world also there's the director's cut first, which actually it's kind of like the editor's cut first because they get the footage from this from the set initially and they have to just put it together quickly. And then the director gets, I don't know, a couple of weeks or something and then the producers start stepping in and the executive producers start, you know, making their, their fingerprints on it. So that's a very different world that I don't work in, but I have friends who do. Um, and so there might be, you know, a bit more of that, but even working with Ken Burns, who is completely, it's his voice, it's his vision. But even then he would just be, you know, the, the vision and the conversation, I mean, we would all work together. Um, and then he would say, go, you know, go, you know, figure, figure out how you think this should work. And sometimes, you know, we'd screen something and he'd 
have or other directors too would have a sense of like oh we should cut there you know and sometimes that would happen of course and sometimes i would feel the same way you know that or i would even say i think we should cut there <laughs> you know but it's a it's always a dialogue you know which is great and you know you've you've obviously your work has spanned from film into digital right so you've got your you've got your monitor right there right (laughs) usually there are two but right now i'm not working on anything so i just have the one right now but yeah (laughs) so i mean the the transition must have been huge i mean was it sort of all at once or was it just very was it gradual it doesn't seem like it could be gradual well, it was actually kind of gradual, um, at least for me, because when, uh, but interestingly, there was sort of this phase between uh, film editing and non-linear editing, which is what Avid, there's a, there's certain systems that are now just the only way that people edit um, that are modeled exactly on film. So the film thinking is actually exactly the same. So the transition from film to these non-linear systems was actually not that hard um, because they even use some of the terminology of film. Like they have where all the footage is kept is called a bin, which literally was a bin of film in original editing rooms. Um, And the, the part that was a transition, which was crazy was there was a phase where there was video editing, which was linear, which meant that you had all these different tapes that you had to put into video machines and you had a system that could edit, that could record, but basically you were recording shots linearly. So if you wanted to change anything, you had to go back and re-record over that linear piece of video track or videotape. So that was a short-lived phase. And I remember saying, because I worked on actually a few shows, it was actually the real world um, when I first moved to Los Angeles and uh, Road Rules, they were editing on video, which was what a lot of people did at that time. And I remember saying, this is so dumb. I'm sure they're going to come up with something better. (laughs) And they did. (laughs) So, And it really is not that different it's very interesting the the because film itself is non-linear you you cut the film here and here you take it out you decide to put it somewhere else you drop it somewhere else and that's what these all these editing systems do now and do you have a sense that that any of the processes was more or less creative or any of the approaches and technologies like do you feel like you can be more creative and a better storyteller now, or how's that for you? Yeah, I mean, I think the linear process definitely stunted creativity. There's no question that that was very difficult to just get nuances of edits, and and it was so difficult to change something that you'd kind of go, oh, never mind, I won't bother, you know, or or whatever. But um, I feel like you know, people often used to ask that about film versus the digital system but it to me it's kind of the same it does feel like there's more freedom to try different things in the digital world because you're not 
physically cutting something and and having to you know make a new splice um so you can definitely try a lot of things but there was sort of a a purposefulness to your edits in film that made you think about it a little bit more before doing it and made you kind of really sit with things a little bit longer um but i think you know when you're working on a project that has people who are thoughtful and and care it's the same in in digital like you really you know try to just do what's best for the story and not worry too much about um speed or you know trying to just crank it out um so i think the benefit of digital is definitely you can try different things a lot of different things more easily and so that's kind of a nice tool to have um, and yeah, sometimes, I mean, you know, I think for all, all craftspeople, artists, you get sometimes your best ideas when you're not in front of the, the, the canvas. Um, and so, you know, in the shower or driving or whatever you go, oh, that's how I should put that juxtaposition. That's how I should tell that story. Right. And so you get back to the, the tools and, and you try it, you know, so, so there is that benefit for sure in digital. And it goes without saying that it is very creative. It's not just like even the words post-production kind of sounds like it's all done. You know, we're just right. we're just putting little little bows right. and ribbons on it, you know? <laughs> right. But it's it's not at all like that. You you yeah. are doing something very creative. Very, yeah. And it's funny because people unfamiliar with this phase, the post-production phase of things. Sometimes people will say to me, even now with as much awareness people have of, of film and television, say, so you cut the bad stuff out? Like that's what an editor does? Someone, no. <laughs> so yeah, there's, as, as I said, with the idea that you give 10 editors the same footage, there'll be 10 different ways that it's put together. Um, there's the crafting of all kinds of elements that whether it's the different angles or the juxtapositions of things, music, sound, that's a big part of the craft as well. Just using sound to link scenes. You know, if you're making a transition from one scene to another, sometimes the audio itself can help you kind of like massage that transition. There's all kinds of ways that um, working on things like Real World and Project Runway, we would use uh, music, lyrics in in different, you know, scenes so that it would enhance what was happening um, so that you could just let something play a little bit and just kind of infuse a little bit something with, with the music. Um, obviously, music in all kinds of films makes, you know, the audience feel sentimental versus tense or whatever. And so there's all that aspect to audio as well. So how do you, I mean, do you have the kind of latitude where you could say, oh, I think this this song would go well here or this piece it, of music would go well here? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, it depends on on the the project. But um, for example, the real world really early on, I don't think it's the case now, but it was part of MTV. So we actually had it kind of amazingly, we could use anything that was on MTV. I mean, the the songs themselves, that was early on in the, the, the stage of real world. But 
uh, Project Runway, Making the Cut, these newer shows, a lot of them we use music libraries, but they have all kinds of fantastic uh, music. And, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, rock and roll or, or you know, ethereal or whatever. Um, and yeah, we, as editors, we just kind of go through the, the whole catalog and find stuff that we think will work. And sometimes a director or producer will say, mm, I think that music should maybe get pulled back a little bit, maybe something a little softer or whatever, but pretty much we'll do what we feel would work best. And another, I mean, on all the decade series, we have a composer and a lot, most projects, there's a composer that comes in. So you'll put in temp music. So I'll have music that I love that I use like William Orbit, all kinds of different kinds of music. And then we'll get a composer who comes in and does something like it so that we can kind of already have a roadmap for the composer of what the feel is for that scene or that whole film. So, um, and on the decade series, we had composers for all the decades. And so we could use those as our our pool of music to choose from. And then they'll make new ones for the new shows as well. I mean, do you have a sense of like, what's the toughest challenge for you as an editor? Like what, what is the, the biggest hurdle to overcome or the toughest thing that you, you face? <laughs> Good question. Interesting. I think it, it's, there's never a consistent thing. I think sometimes it can be um, schedules, you know, being just too tight that you really want to give something the time that it deserves. And especially in television, it's just very frustrating that you just have to, you know, get it, get it done in this amount of time instead of this amount of time. And so I end up spending many, many long hours because I can't help but try to make it as good as it can possibly be. And so I end up working a lot more hours than I'm usually paid for because I just want it to be good. <laughs> so that's probably the toughest thing. Um, Cause I just, I don't know how to do like a half-assed job of something. So <laughs> I wish I could, you know, there's like a lot of people that just kind of crank it out in that world. But um, I mean, in like reality TV kind of stuff, you know um, but I just, yeah, I think that's one of the toughest things. And, and, you know, I guess another is I've worked on a couple of things where there's just not enough footage. And so you're trying to sort of, you know, make a painting out of, you know, something that there's just not enough pieces to, to really make a story out of it. And so you're kind of trying to, you know, fit a, a round peg into a square hole. And so that, that can be frustrating, but it, these days, you know, usually because things are digital, there's usually people shoot more than they they should sometimes. Um, but that can be that can be frustrating. Like uh, you know, in in some shows where there's uh, characters that you really need to be following, and the camera is over here where they should be over there. You know, and so that's you know, so in the editing room, you're trying to make up for it somehow or other. But I have to say, um, I'll give you an example of a situation that actually a colleague of mine cut, and I've I've done this in smaller versions, but this was a fantastic way that he figured out how to use a really badly shot scene 
in a way that would work. So for example, there was this scene of a mother and father in a car with the son in the back seat, and they had a camera just in the car. So it was dark, it was not very good, but it was a very important conversation. And they all were mic'd, so we had the audio. Later, there was a scene of them in a whole different context, a whole different uh, conversation in the house. And the son was on the couch, the mother was at the table, and the father was in a chair. So simply by having a couple of words from one of their mouths come out like, well, Diana, or whatever, he was able to use the conversation from the car and put it in the living room and just make it seem like it happened in the living room just by reaction shots, nods, you know, different things. And I've done that too. And it's just, it works. And it's not anything faked because it's a real conversation between these three people. But sometimes you have to do stuff like that just so that you can tell the story that you need to tell. It doesn't happen that often, but it works. You know, It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, um, do you, are you able to recognize things that are edited by people that you know, or people who oh, you sure. admire? Can you, without even knowing who was the editor, say, oh, that's so-and-so? Oh, in that sense? Um, only within the people that I know, and for example, like in Ken Burns's world, I know the editors there. He's worked with the same editors for years and years. I know them. I know their work. And so in that context, yes, I've been able to, because I'll see, for example, the episode or the um, series on Vietnam that Ken Burns did, which I did not work on. Um, but I knew all the editors and, you know, about, you know, I don't know, 10 minutes in, I'd say, this is a Paul Barnes edit, or this is a Trisha Reedy edit. <laughs> um, and sure enough, I would I would be right usually, um, but not just films that are out there in the world. But, you know, very often, certainly within my documentary world, I often know who the editors are before I, I see them. Um, but yeah, it's a good question about some others. But again, it always, there's always different stories, different contexts. Um, you know, so I think there are some editors that are just incredibly fluid and beautiful. And so there, again, there's editors who I've worked with, who I have seen their work later and go, oh, yes, this is this is their touch. Um, so, yeah, there is there is that. What do you, you know, you mentioned Ken Burns several times, like what is so special about those programs as documentaries? Like, why are they so you know, iconic, momentous. Do you, do you have a sense as in terms of filmmaking, not necessarily just in terms of subject matter? Mm -hmm. um, well, he was, I think, the first to use still photos in a certain way and use uh, historical storytelling in a certain way that I I think is why he's he's been so iconic. Um, when he did the Civil War, he'd actually... I, I was working with him as an assistant on a film called The Congress, which was being edited simultaneous to the Civil War. So it was before he was known. Um, but he, I think it's a combination of 
him using people who could tell stories, like in the Civil War, he used this amazing historian, Shelby Foote, who told stories and he had written books about it. And usually Ken will go to people who have written books about the subject matter. Like on baseball, there were experts that had amazing stories. And by using those people who could tell stories as if they were there, um, and sometimes like on baseball, I worked on an episode about the Negro Leagues, which was the 1930s. And we had this amazing man, Buck O'Neill, who was there. And so he would tell these incredible stories. And you never know until you're actually interviewing these people what the stories are going to be. Uh, but that richness of storytelling that he would find people who could really relate these things, even if they were long ago, like Shelby Foote with the Civil War, um, that richness of of the person telling it in almost like the present tense was really amazing. And then using archival footage and still photographs. And Ken created this way of using still photographs that now Apple has stolen as the, or not stolen, but use as the Ken Burns effect, which is movements on a photograph. And that was something that we as editors did that Ken really established from his early years that he did, but we all adopted it in telling a story by the movement on a photograph. And we would physically map out how we wanted the photograph to be filmed. So, you know, we have the audio of Buck O'Neill telling a story about Satchel Page, and I've got a few photographs of Satchel Page, and so I would mark, okay, start here, and then pull out, or start with the hand, with the baseball, and then move out, you know, or whatever it is, and so we would craft the storytelling with those photographs, and I think the fact that Apple has created the Ken Burns effect as that kind of movement is a testament to Ken's vision of how to use those things. But like when I think about you, you know, that maybe you had hours of interviews with Buck O'Neill and maybe you could use five minutes. Right. I mean, that, that requires a certain kind of ruthlessness, right? You have to really be incredibly disciplined and tough with yourself and with the material yeah you know yeah. to to do that and just you know cut the rest away and maybe no one will ever see <laughs> right that footage you know right yeah is that something no. that you sort of developed or do you feel well that is a, a an aspect that would be along with the director you know depending on and again in the case of ken i mean he had also a writer that he would work with for the narration because in Ken's films, he has narration, which most of the films I've worked on does not have, but that would be sort of the outline, the structure of how we're going to do the history, break it up into episodes and have then the interviews get infused into the historical outline. And sometimes those stories were so fabulous that we wouldn't cut them. I mean, we would, you know, keep them whole. Um, but yeah, of course, I mean, it depends on the the film, how much time you're given. I mean, Ken has the luxury of PBS allowing him to make the shows as long as he wants. Most everybody else does not have that luxury, which is fantastic for his, his storytelling. But um, yeah, I mean, we, 
on everything I work on, there will be these fantastic interviews that you just kind of go, oh, I wish I could keep this. I mean, I worked on a series about the movies for CNN and we had some amazing, this one particular man, Sam Wasson, who was a, a absolute expert on all kinds of films in the 1970s and Bob Fosse. And he told stories that were hilarious and moving and fantastic. And no, I would say, yeah, probably 75% of them ended up on the cutting room floor. But yeah, there's only so much time. And especially in television, there's television hours, you know, the whatever it is, the 43 minutes that you just have to let go of stuff. And, and that is totally a conversation in the editing room. Do we keep this? Do we, can we make it work with just a part of it? Um, and the director, the producers are all part of that conversation usually. But yeah, if I get sort of an outline from a director that says, you know, let's use this, 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 but we watch the whole interview always and just kind of say, oh, that's a good, oh, let's keep that. Let's, and then we make selects of all the stories, all the things that we want to keep and then try to start infusing them into the structure. And then you kind of go, oh, that's kind of a repetition of what he said before. We don't need that one. You know, so it's, it's a constantly evolving process. And, you know, when you, when you sort of look back on your work, what would you say if, if someone were going to recognize your style, what do you think they would recognize? Like what, what would you say is kind of characteristic of the way you edit it? Can you say that? Hmm. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I guess what I've leaned into more, just what moves me more is um, not fast sort of, you know, montage -y kind of stuff. Um, I'm much more drawn to kind of more pathos, more of the emotional sort of um, trying to get the nuances of, of what people feel or what's happening in a situation. Um, so... I don't know that there's a specific style because I've worked on so many different kinds of things. I mean, you know, a lot of people sort of stay with scripted television or independent documentaries that are all live action or archival. Um, but I've done a lot of different kinds of things between reality, archival features. Um, so I think it just depends on the film itself. But I think when I'm called up and when I get emails or calls about jobs, I seem to gravitate towards things that are going to have that emotional, personal storytelling um, that, that interests me most. If you were going to like, create a project for yourself, like if you were going to say, be the director but you're the director creating the project so that you can edit it. Do you have a sense of like what you would like to work on, what you would, what you would develop for yourself? I don't know. I mean, you know, it's funny. I've, my whole career has been projects that have been brought to me and then I decide if I want to be part of it or not. 
Um, I did in this past year because I love movies. When I worked on the series about the movies for CNN, I was uh, given the opportunity this past year to produce, i.e. direct, um, this documentary about uh, holiday films. Uh, it was Christmas films, holiday films called Tis the Season, Holidays on Screen on CNN. And so I was given those reigns to direct and choose which films we used. And of course, there was a whole team that we worked together. Um, but it was nice to be able to have that voice to be able to just say, no, let's focus on this aspect of this and this aspect. Of course, the project was brought to me. So it's not that I went out and said, I want to make a film about holiday films. But it was great to have that um, position even more than as editor, even though I felt I had that freedom as an editor as well, but to really choose what aspects to focus on within the films that we featured. Um, I mean, to me, there's so many topics in the world that I care about, like about refugees and about children and about the environment. And so I don't have specific projects in my head that I would want to go out and and film those things or or but I do also because frankly I see how hard it is to get a film off the ground I mean people who direct and produce they have to get the money they have to knock on doors they have you know all those things that I'm actually not that crazy about doing <laughs> I love it when it's kind of like oh okay here's the footage let's make a story out of it um, but at the same time, there are definitely topics that I care about. And so that I, I do think about, okay, what, what could be a story that would be worth following here and, and pursuing? Um, we'll see. <laughs> well, it's really been great speaking with you, Yafa. I really appreciate your time and your insight, uh, uh, just so much that we learned. Uh, so thank you. Well, thank you, Dave. It's great to see you. And uh, thank you. It was a pleasure. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. Our editor is Christopher Daydreamer. He also performed and wrote the music you're hearing now. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to The Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.